nonprofit MBA purpose is to provide new business insights and fresh creative ideas for executive directors and their teams that will help them improve their organization. Here is your host, Stephen Holastic. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Elastic. I will be your host for today's nonprofit MBA podcast, as I usually am. I am co-founder of Financing Solutions, and Financing Solutions is the leading provider in the United States of lines of credit for small nonprofits. It's a great product. It's very popular. We've been doing this for 12 years. Honestly, it's very, very hard for a nonprofit to get a line of credit from a commercial bank. And, you know, we are well known for this space. A huge majority of our clients are nonprofits. Uh, If you're interested in learning more, please visit our website at nonprofitmbapodcast.com and uh, you can learn more. Uh, And our sponsor for today's podcast is Arrays. Uh, Raise Fast Fund Online is a cloud-based system that seamlessly integrates nonprofit fund accounting, fundraising, and payroll. So it's great accounting software specifically built for nonprofits. Um, And if you're interested in learning more, I mean, if you're not using a good software for your uh, accounting system, you know, if you're using QuickBooks like that, it's not really good for nonprofits, Um, then go to... uh, you know, arrays.com, it's A-R-A-I-Z-E.com, or call 866-840-7449 and ask for Joe. Um, other than that, uh, I'd like to introduce our guest, uh, Cheryl Kababa, is a chief design officer at the Insights Design and Development Studio called Substantial, and a multidisciplinary design strategist with more than two decades of experience. She is focused on reinventing the approaches of learning and collaboration in in today's educational environment to help equity-centered research affirm and advance relationships between institutions, educators, and students. Her recent work with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation includes leading student voice research to inform the K-12 balance the Equation Grand Challenge. Her book, Closing the Loop, Systems Thinking for Designers, was released in early 2023. Cheryl, welcome to today's Nonprofit MBA podcast. Thank you. I'm really excited to be speaking today. I am. I'm excited to listen to you too. This is going to be, I, I, you know, listen, I'm a power learner and, um, and this is going to be a very high level discussion. And what I like about something like that is that it gives you some new insights as to um, a subject matter that uh, you can really walk away with some really good ideas. Um, Today's topic is called uh, Human-Centered Design, a Creative Approach to Decisions for Nonprofits. And, um, you know, know, first, Cheryl, um, you are a strategist by by training and by career. Is that is that? Is that accurate? Yeah, um, I would describe myself as a design strategist um, because, you know, as you mentioned, human-centered design is kind of the approach that we take in um, our practice at Substantial. And uh, what that means is basically using a focus on the people for whom you're designing um products and services for, um, centering them within the process 
And then that drives your decision making, whether it's like with your products or in your investment strategies or what have you. And so, um, yeah, that's how I kind of think about it in terms of, um, you know, the intersection of human centered design and strategy. No, I, I, I know you deal with very, very large institutions and, um, but in general, I, I've seen this over and over again, no matter the size of the organizations, uh, we all forget who we're serving, don't we? Yeah, I, I'm actually continually surprised. You know, I've been a designer now for almost three decades and um, there, it still happens really often where products and services are being designed for people and those people are not consulted with, engaged, like within the process of designing those things um, until it hits them and they're expected to basically use it. Like we can think sometimes of like digital products. Um, you know, I work in education, so there are things like courseware, et cetera. And I'm always kind of like shocked by how often um, whole products are built without necessarily ever talking to those who will be the end users or expected to be the end users of products. Yeah, but I, I mean, even, but bringing it down to nonprofits too, which is almost 90% of the time about serving people, right? Mm -hmm. um, you, know, I, you know, why is it that we... We all assume that we know, and I'm, I'm definitely guilty of this, okay? Why is it that we assume we know what our constituents, uh, our, our customers, the people we're trying to help in nonprofits um, are, you know, why do we think we know more about, why do we think we know what they want and what they need? Why, why do we stop asking? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question because I do think, you know, a lot of small nonprofits are actually really well connected for the most part with the communities for whom they're designing solutions. Um, but I think there is something about designing solutions and the problem solving involved in that. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, I like work a lot on digital products, for example. And I think that creates an immediate sort of and um, work, work with nonprofits, in fact, who are kind of like creating digital solutions. And I think what happens is like you get really caught up in the sort of engineering of it all, like the engineering and problem solving that um, you can get really far along with a potential solution and forget to check back with those for whom you're designing. And that happens really frequently because listen, like creating solutions is really complex, complicated work. And um, oftentimes it takes time and energy to let's say continually interview people who will be kind of like the recipients of the solutions you're designing to test things and validate with them. And, um, you know, those kinds of timelines, those kinds of like engineering or problem solving get in the way of, you know, feeling like you should continually be engaging like those who will be affected 
by what you're designing. Um, and that's, yeah, that's not, of course, like that's not just with like nonprofits, that's with everyone, <laughs> I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, and I think too that let's bring it down to like the basic level. Um, if you, if you're the executive director of a nonprofit that helps with the homeless, right. Um, you, you, you may not have been homeless yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, with me and my company, I've had several companies and throughout my 30 year career, I've almost always had a line of credit and I know what it's like to get a line of credit with a bank. Right. So I have direct experience with what we're selling. Mm-hmm. Right. But if you're an executive director and your constituents are homeless people, the the gap between what you think they need and what they think they need is so much bigger than the gap between me providing a line of credit and knowing what my customers potentially want for that line of credit. So, so what I'm trying to say here is, you know, we all make these huge assumptions that we know what people want and the bigger the gap between if you've actually used those services yourself, it, it requires you to spend more time asking real well thought out questions, doesn't it? Yeah. I love I love that perspective because I think that's a, that's an argument really for um, having representation on your team, mm-hmm. um, especially when that gap and that power differential is really wide, right? Like, yeah, as you mentioned before, it's like you can you can relate pretty closely to your own customers because you've been there before, and also you know, that gives you kind of like a sense of what their context and experience is. Um, when you're kind of working with and trying to create solutions for a design for a really highly marginalized group, and you don't have, you know, similar lived experiences, um, the gap could be really super wide. And I think that's a reason that there's actually so much failed intervention in spaces like that. Um, it's really interesting. Like I, I've done a lot of work in global development and I, I think you, you get a lot of that in that space, like people from the West who are kind of like designing health solutions for those who are in, you know, basically the most, um, like you like economies that are completely different <laughs> from where you're coming from so it could be somebody who's like in San Francisco designing things for um you know people who are living in rural Kenya and there's kind of only so much you can context you can receive as somebody with just like a fundamentally different set of lived experiences um, that, you know, it sort of blocks your ability to be able to design effectively for this totally different community with whom you, you, you know, you don't kind of like share 
their experiences, like their motivations, their context. Um, so you see a lot of, you know, failed interventions that are funded by large philanthropies in that space. Um, and you also see kind of like the hubris of designers trying to design for that space. I talk a lot, for example, about like, I don't know if you remember the one laptop per child initiative in yeah. like the early 2000s. Yeah. And there, you know, that was like a lot of, you know, essentially wealthy people in the West trying to design for a system for like poor people in the global South. And um, there were a lot of adoption issues. There were a lot of like misunderstanding of like how people use technology in those places, access to technology. And it essentially fizzled because of that lack of understanding and context. Well, I mean, let's face it though. You, you need to have a broad, a, 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 um, you need to have a, a, a huge, you know, it's called a BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal. Right. Mm -hmm. um, or a vision. You know, I mean, you look at Elon Musk um, and, you know, his he, he believes that you need to that we need to colonize other planets because it's the future of our humanity. We we're, we we can't survive on this planet. Right. So, I mean, you think of the obstacles that are required in colonizing other planets living out in space. You, you know, you you might say the same about getting laptops to somebody in 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 Kenya, right? Um, it sounds silly, but you know, I I, I kind of get the vision. To be honest with you, um, let me come back to you on on, on another question. Uh, not in, you know, we're talking here about systems thinking, and is there a methodology that someone can follow? for systems thinking that's like so like so you're going to come back to me cheryl and you're going to say well systems thinking involves five parts and you know and give me a sentence for each one of those parts is there can, can you look at things that way yeah i think if you're um i think systems thinking is a really good way of like kind of gaining context into the problem space for which you are yeah trying to solve or trying to intervene and I think of it as having sort of like key three components that you need to be thinking about when you engage in systems thinking. Um, the first is um, interconnectedness. So re recognizing that things are interconnected in ways that might not necessarily be immediately visible to you. Mm -hmm. um, so, so awareness, awareness that things are more complicated than you give them credit for. Yeah, oftentimes um, within systems thinking, the the um, a good analogy is like if you think about a forest, for example, it's like you know the roots are kind of interconnected in ways that the trees basically talk to each other and support each other. Um, and then there's causality. So causality is the second concept in which there are consequences to the decisions that you make. So it could be, um, you know, or the thing, there's consequences to um, the change in forces that are happening. So if you think about the forest again, there's all, there's like kind of like that cycle of life that happens. So like there's, you know, birds and animals that are kind of dependent on the trees and, um, you know, the flora that, 
create this environment in which they can all thrive and then they support support each other. And there's almost like a sustainability cycle. And then lastly, there's wholeness. So kind of thinking about the system beyond the purview of just your direct problem solving. So for example, you know, you brought you brought the example of like, um, trying to create interventions in in the homelessness space. Um, There's lots of like, when you think about the system as a whole, you have to think really broadly about like, you know, what are policymakers doing in this space? Like, how does this connect to, you know, sociocultural aspects of, um, you know, the region in which you're trying to problem solve? Um, you know, who are all the different kind of layers of stakeholders involved? And that creates sort of a whole view of the system that you might be trying to solve for. Um, you would also have to kind of like look at root cause of, whatever it is you're trying to problem solve for. Um, and the, Peter Senge, who wrote The Fifth Discipline, it's like kind of a classic in organizational change management and systems thinking. One of his principles is, um, and I'm paraphrasing, is that yesterday's solutions uh, become today's problems. So there's also, there's just like a recognition that anything that you might solve for today will probably generate problems of its own. And so you have to be able to kind of anticipate or potentially like mitigate as you're kind of thinking about how um, your problem solving and your solutions feed back into the system. Okay. So the first part of the process is awareness that things are more complicated than you think they are. That's number one. And I just use my wording and okay. So number two, um, what would number two be? Yeah. So then I think you, I would say fall in love with the problem space. <laughs> so um, before you set out on creating solutions or no, even know the shape of them, really having a deep understanding of the problem space. Hmm. Um, you know, I think for example, like I've actually, I've actually done some work. Well, you know, I've done quite a bit of work in education and before you're even kind of understanding what the problems are, sometimes people know exactly what they think the solution is going to be. They're like, okay, well, the solution is going to be a tutoring app. And if you do enough analysis of the problem space, understand the stakeholders, understand like maybe some of the key problems you're trying to solve for, like why are students failing in X subject? Like what kind of supports do they need? Um, that doesn't always beeline to a tutoring app, right? And I think that's like a really good way to kind of think about it is how does, how can you understand the problem space in a way that leaves, that leaves it open for um, innovation even, right? Like opportunities that might exist in other ways. Like, do you need to think about the role of teacher professional development um, and maybe that's not a, a digital application. That's more of a service that you need to design. Yeah. Um, so it's really falling in love with your problem space and trying to imagine like the opportunities and challenges that sit within that. So I guess what I would do then is and and uh, is go in depth instead of jumping right to solutions, just listing you know all the different problems that are associated with. Um, the, 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 what we're trying to solve. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, for example, like um, you had mentioned when you introduced me that like I worked on with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation on um, a grand challenge that they had released around the subject of Algebra One. And so they were basically inviting nonprofits to like respond to this call to like respond to this problem space. And that could have been a grand challenge that said, hey, the solutions that we're imagining are totally digital. Um, but rather than doing that, they kind of like thought about like five different spaces, including things like teacher professional development, that could be areas in which that could contribute to the problem solving in this space, this problem of Algebra One being kind of like a gateway course, but also... Um, students who fall into under-resourced demographics were disproportionately, you know, not like not being prepared for um, college because they were kind of like missing the mark on like when they take algebra and how, how successful they were at it. Yep. So it's, um, it's kind of like interesting to kind of like blow open your, your problem space, right? Like you can kind of think about kind of different ways of problem solving that aren't necessarily directional. Okay. Uh, third one. I would say once you think about like what your solutions are, um, one, you have to acknowledge that there's multifinality. That's a, that's a concept in systems thinking that says there's no one solution to a problem space. Like there can be multiple solutions. So you can be somebody, for example, who's designing or creating digital product, but you can, you also might need to think about like how policy could affect the space or regulation or what have you. Um, so, you know, again, an, an example from education, if you're trying to create a new assessment for math, then you're going to have to think about like, okay, well, what are states regulations or like policies around um you know, testing for math, like how do students kind of like move up in the process? Like how do they enter like the state university system for STEM education? Like those are all things like you're going to need to keep in mind. And so you have to accept that like your solution, especially in complex, what we call like wicked problem spaces is going to be kind of one potential solution of many. Um, and then the other thing is like, once you have kind of a solution in mind, you should create a theory of change. So like basically understanding what is the, what are the outcomes and impact that you're trying to achieve? Um, so if you're part of, you know, designing for the eradicate, like, you know, the Gates Foundation has like an audacious goal of like wanting to eradicate malaria, right? That's right. like one of like the key things that they're working on. And so when you say a theory of change, one, there's lots of different potential solutions that can feed into that eventual impact statement. Um, and so let's say like you're, you're working on designing um, a vaccine um, for malaria, then part of it is designing a theory changes, understanding what your outputs are, like what your activities and outputs are in order to create that vaccine. And then you have to then think about the outcomes. Um, so what is your goal in terms of like, and what are you going to measure? So that could be 
how many people in a certain region or a certain continent or whatever receive these vaccines. And then the impact is going to be the eradication of malaria. So there's like, this happens in degrees and there are certain things that you have control over and then certain things you don't. But like being able to connect to those outcomes and impact is really super important in really kind of like understanding and always like aligning with what you're going to achieve with what you're doing. Um, and so, and not losing sight of that. So, yeah, I get it. So, I mean, so let me paraphrase here. So in step two, we're talking about understanding all the problems and really investigating in depth. Right. But when you get to step three, you have to make sure that the potential solutions that you're coming up with um, are going to address the problems that you had initiated because in, in, and I, I don't want to make this too complicated, but in step two, understanding all the problems, you you may uh, realize that the the uh, you need to uh, narrow your focus much more on the problem you're trying to solve because when you're in step three of coming up with solutions, otherwise your solutions, you know, it may be so big the solutions you come up with that you can't execute it. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a possibility. Um, But that's why you need to be engaged with like a really broad set of stakeholders is because there's somebody in the system who could execute on that or could partner with you to execute on that or what have you, right? Um, And then there's actually some things that are like really narrow that you could do that could also contribute to the problem solving. So when I mentioned earlier about like, yeah, a tutoring app could be part of that, right? And you would have to just know where that fits into the system of problem solving um, and have a theory of change of how that like contributes to the broader outcomes and goals that you're trying, or sorry, broader outcomes and impact that you're trying to achieve. Yeah, I, I, um, you know, I think with the overall theme that we're talking about here, and I mean, listen, you're a strategist, so you're gonna be you're gonna be all, all on top of this. But you know, really, what we're saying here is that we we all need to to be much, much, much better at strategy before. Yeah. So let so let me articulate this differently. Listen, I am great at execution and getting things done and moving things forward. That's my skill set, right? What I am not great at, and I'm just using me as an example for most people out there. um, And I think a lot of executive directors are that way. They're really great at doing, right? But what, what, what we all need to do is much more strategy, much more understanding the problems much more looking at the solutions before we actually execute. Yeah, I have I have a really good analogy for that. So, you know, Karl Popper, the philosopher, um, in the 1970s, he kind of wrote this paper, this essay about cloud problems and clock problems. And I think 
you know, when you talk about kind of executives and like kind of making decisions, like I'm an, an executive myself. So I'm like, I fall, into, I feel like I fall into that very like action oriented category. Um, he would really? describe those as, you, you're, yeah, yeah. you're a strategist. I know I'm a strategist, <laughs> but I mean, if you think about like the getting it done ism of like, you know, when you're just like, okay, I need to be like, quick on my toes and like making decisions. It's just, I don't know. Like, I think I, I resist that as much as I can. You know what I mean? Like, because like, I do believe like part of my philosophy is like, you have to understand the problem space before just like diving in and trying to solve things immediately. And so I think the clock problem, the way you think about it is our clocks are easy to break down. They're easy to break down into components. You can isolate, like if a clock is broken, you can take it apart, isolate the components, and you can kind of look at like what's not making it work, put it back together, and you kind of understand the components of this. And it's very directional. This kind of describes like, you know, engineering culture, et cetera. Um, and he talks a little bit about like, cloud problems. So clouds are literally nebulous. Um, They're dynamic, they're changing, and they can be hard to understand in terms of like how they work. They're complex. And we need to kind of like think about the systems in which we're trying to problem solve, the problem spaces in which we're trying to problem solve. We need to acknowledge how, how they are, how many of them are actually clouds. Like, we need to kind of understand who all the stakeholders are, how people have different incentives, how there are, you know, there's a lot of conflict in terms of like the outcomes that people want and acknowledge that and also kind of like use that as um, an understanding of the problem space. Like, you know, Horst Ritter, um, I think he was a he was a planner in the 70s and described wicked problems, right? These are problems that we would describe today as like existent healthcare. Like the solving malaria is a wicked problem. Solving homelessness is a wicked problem. Um, there's lots of like problems in like healthcare and education. These are all wicked problems because there's no single direction you can go to solve for it. There's not a single like TED talk that is just like, this is how you solve for this, even though like people who give TED Talks will convince you that, like that one thing they're doing is what's going to solve this entire problem space. Yeah. Um, yeah. You look at climate change, like that is a wicked problem. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think it's like acknowledging the complexity and maybe taking a beat before like diving into problem solving so we can kind of know where our problem solving will potentially actually solve things and where it might contribute to further problems. So problem of unintended consequences, which would be the next step, I think. <laughs> yeah, I get it. And, you know, like, you know, like I had said in the beginning of this podcast, um, you know, I, I like talking to really, really smart, high level people because I can usually walk away with one thing that I'm like, oh, that was really something I really need to do a better job at, you know, uh, uh, insight. And, uh, you know, I think I think everybody who's listening today can walk away with something that they say, oh, well, this is what I can really use better. Um, I, I tell all of the new uh, businesses that start and nonprofits um, that I really believe that we all need, you, you need to strategize. 
You need to strategize and take a step back from the doing. And, um, you know, I think many of us, what we do is we start our organizations. uh, We get really, really involved in the doing. And then at some point, the organization we hope is running so that you feel like you can have the time to step back and then be a strategist, which is really what you want to do as an executive director, right? You want to be, you want to be looking at things from the um, outer space, looking down perspective on looking on the problem instead of being in the problem. And, uh, and I, and I think, when you're starting your organization and building it, and I'm talking about, you know, under $10 million in size that if you can take a little bit of time every single week, I, I used to do it all the time. I would go to a coffee shop every Friday for an hour and work on my strategic plan, you know, which I, which I would limit it to one page. I had a one page strategic plan. And if you just Google one page strategic plan, you'll come up with, um, the guy's name is Vern Harnish that I use and it's great. Um, and I would just keep working my strategic plan. And part of that from what we also heard today was really diving deeper into the problems that are out there, uh, understanding the problems, because I think we all, you know, everybody wants to jump to the solutions. Everybody does. Right. And, um, so what I'm proposing to everybody today is to take some time out of your day, out of your week, and just focus on what Cheryl has said today. And that is better awareness of what's going on out there in your space. Um, then, then really trying to understand all the problems that are going on. And then at that point, the rest is a lot easier, which is then what are the potential solutions, which we are naturally all pretty good at trying to really tackle. Is that a fair assessment, Cheryl? Yeah, absolutely. Good. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank so very much, Cheryl Kababa from Substantial for coming on to today's podcast. And if you like today's podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend. And also subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. And if you like today's podcast, please give us a five-star review on your podcasting app. It really helps us get the word out. I mean, the Nonprofit MBA podcast is right now, I think, in the top 2% of all podcasts that are out there for people who are listening to it. You know, I mean, we're right up there with some of the, you know, most listened to podcasts in our space. And I really thank you for that. Those reviews really help us uh, get the word out. And if you're looking for a line of credit for your nonprofit, please feel free to visit our website at nonprofitmbapodcast.com. And Cheryl, if people want to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. Just type in my name. I'm the only one with that yeah, name. Yeah, it's spelled C-A-B-A-B-A. Correct. Um, and But your website is also substantial.com, correct? That's right. So yeah. substantial.com. You can find our work at Substantial there. Um, yeah. And I'm also on Twitter. So Cheryl, at Cheryl Kababa. Yep. Cool. And it's Cheryl. It's S-H-E-R-Y-L. Just correct. For yep, yep, yep. So uh, I want to thank all our listeners for uh, for not just listening, but for making the world a better place. We certainly need your help. And you guys are out there every single day in the front lines, 
And, you know, and I just want to remind you uh, that you need to take care of yourself first. You can't help your family. You can't help your, your, uh, your significant other. You can't help the people that you're trying to uh, help in your nonprofit if you don't take care of yourself first. And so, you know what that means? It means every day you need to think, what do I need to, to do today to make sure that I'm feeling good about myself? And that could be exercise, eating right, taking time, meditating, all these different things, not overworking, you know, all those things, uh, because we need you, you know, the world's got a lot of problems and, um, and you're there solving some major problems. And I, again, thank you for that. So other than that, thank you for listening to the Nonprofit MBA podcast, and we'll have other great guests on just like Shara was. Thanks. Have a great day.